0: Hello and welcome to The Day That Antitrust Died, a special feature of the Ipsa podcast. I'm Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law.
1: And, and I'm Ramsey Woodcock, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law as well. On March 2nd, 1974, a group of antitrust scholars met at the Arley House in Warrington, Virginia. Together, we are going to investigate whether that was the day that antitrust died. We're really fortunate uh, to have here uh, Daniel Crane, who's a professor at the University of Michigan School of Law and one of the foremost authorities on antitrust law in the United States, uh, who has also written uh, extensively about uh, historical issues in antitrust law. Uh, uh, so we're, we're super lucky to have him here today uh, to help us answer the question whether in 1974 antitrust died or not. Uh, so. Uh, uh, So the significance of the Arleigh House Conference is, uh, I think, not subject to huge debate. I think it's it's viewed as having been a tremendous intellectual catastrophe for the dominant um, establishment approach to antitrust in the mid-20th century, which was relatively vigorous uh, relative to the antitrust that we have today. and you know, given now that uh, folks are looking at antitrust and asking whether we shouldn't go back to the old, uh, more vigorous approach, it's worthwhile asking exactly why that approach uh, uh, fell apart after the Arley House conference. Uh, now, that conference has a wonderful conference volume. Uh, it's called Industrial Concentration and New Learning, and in it... There are these amazing dialogues between all of the participants, including figures who went on to be really important in the, in the antitrust world, like Richard Posner uh, and Mike Shearer, who we had on uh, uh, for an earlier podcast. And in these debates, you have the establishment folks like Mike Shearer, who seem completely overwhelmed by the vigor of these Chicago school arguments. And so, so the establishment people would uh, subscribe to this framework in which uh, you had to constantly beat down barriers to entry into markets that were being put up by firms. Uh, and the Chicago people, school people came out and said, hey, look, uh, big firms might not be bad for consumers. They have you know, more funds to invest in research and development. They can innovate. Uh, they can do things that smaller firms can't. And they can produce better products for consumers. Uh, and, uh, and this argument really seems to have won out in Arley House. Uh, and so I'm curious, you know, first, whether you agree with that sort of a um, uh, uh, hundred mile up uh, sort of view of what happened in Arley House, and also whether you think that was a good a good change in antitrust, that to sort of recognize that big isn't always bad and that um, competition isn't always the best thing for consumers.
2: Sure. So, you know, I think Arley House is obviously an important inflection point, um, although if you really go back, the Chicago School Project is announced as early as 1956 with Director and Levy's article uh, sort of giving the agenda for the Chicago School to come and, and work done by, uh, you know, by, the, by lots of people, associated both in, in the law school at Chicago and the economics department, uh, well earlier than that. So uh, what, what really happens, of course, is that uh, in 74, uh, really to 77, 78, when the Supreme Court really takes up, uh, the sort of almost full-throatedly, the, the Chicago School project is you get sort of this uh, this coming out of the Chicago School uh, on the big public stage, uh, and, um, and 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 you, and I think what's happening at one level is an intellectual battle between the structural school associated with Harvard. Uh, and the rising Chicago school on sort of the empirical things that you're talking about. Questions about scale, questions about um, the uh, inevitability that concentrated oligopolies will produce um, lower uh, output levels and higher prices. Um, So at at that level, you're you're getting this uh, very academic debate uh, that's largely empirically focused. Uh, And and after a while, I think Chicago arguably starts winning that game on the empirical side. Now, it doesn't mean that they're Right forever. It just means that in terms of the particular uh, dynamics of that moment, uh, Chicago is is winning that fight. But you also, I think, have sort of at, at a political level uh, a desire in the country to shift in some new directions. Um, and when when Bork sort of packages this all in terms of the consumer welfare standard, there are lots of reasons that would have a significant appeal in the '70s. This is, after all, uh, the time when Ralph Nader is talking about the consumer and how. Uh, we've we've you know sh- sort of sold short the American consumer, and so from and left and actually, to right. And actually,
1: yeah. If I can uh, just cut you off, uh, Mark Green, who was a Nader's raider, was present <laughs> at the Arley House conference in in 1974.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I you know I think there's a way in which both at the sort of the intellectual and empirical level, there's a fight that's happening. I think Arley House really sort of showcases that side of it. But there's also sort of in the wider economy, in the, in the wider uh, political system, uh, a, a willingness to take. Uh, antitrust and regulation, both um, in, in a new direction. So, by by the end of the '70s, you have um, you know Democrats like um, you know like Steve Breyer and, and Teddy Kennedy talking about you know deregulating the airlines, and uh, and you you sort of get lots of attacks on on, on regulation itself as something that's standing in the way of of the consumer and consumer welfare. And so, um, it, it, you know, I think it's important to understand this historically, both as uh, the the intellectual. Uh, uh, um, confrontation between structuralism and, and the Chicago School claims, uh, but also sort of socially and politically as, as, as kind of a moment when there is uh, a receptivity to a, a new story about, about antitrust and, and regulation being focused on the consumer.
1: This is some, something that's that's interesting about this is this connection between deregulation, which is going on at the same time that you had Arlie House and sort of the, the um, ramping down of antitrust enforcement is that regulation was often about um, sort of government control over very large companies, right? And I think principally of AT&T, which was actually Mm -hmm. broken up as part of an antitrust suit, but which had been sort of your um, archetypical regulated monopoly for, you know, 50 years before it was broken up in the early 80s as a result of this. So you had this sort of, you know, the mid-20th century Approach to size seemed to have been regulation mm-hmm. uh, or so you either regulated the large company if you thought it was good to have the large company or if you thought it was bad to have a large company you broke it up through antitrust and then you have the Chicago school come in and say wait a second large companies might actually be good we shouldn't be breaking them up with antitrust you might have thought looking at that mid 20th century history that the next step would be to well let's if these, these companies should be big let's regulate them Right. The way we've been doing. But instead, at the same time that we're celebrating size, we're also eliminating the structures that we had once thought were important to regulate size.
2: And remember, one of the Chicago School critiques um, of regulation is that it is a predatory process. This is sort of the rise of public choice theory as well. Uh, regulation itself is, is a predatory process that's captured by, by the dominant firms in the industry uh, to create entry barriers and keep out, um, keep out small competitors to the detriment of the consumer, so in, in, sort of intellectually and sort of politically, uh, Chicago tells a story where the problem is not just antitrust. The problem is both regulation and antitrust, kind of in conspiracy together to harm the consumer. Uh, we read Bork's antitrust paradox. You know, he is very clear that there are uh, that, that, that the major sources of durable entry barriers is government regulation. When, when Bill Baxter from, comes from Stanford to work in the Reagan administration and, and sort of is the, is the guy who breaks up AT&T, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary fact, right? We kind of forget. We talk about the Reagan administration killing antitrust. Well, the biggest <laughs> breakup in, in American history uh, was that at t breakup, and that was orchestrated by the, with the Reagan Justice Department. And that's right out of, of Baxter's view that regulated monopolists like AT&T are predatory on regulatory processes to harm competition. So AT&T was rate regulated on on basic phone service. They were not rate regulated in um, uh, adjacent products like you know like um, like hardware, uh, and so they could, according to Baxter, they could tie. They could they could basically use their power that they couldn't spend in the regulated sphere to coerce. Uh, customers to buy other things from them. And, and this is also part and parcel of a, of a broader package of, of a monopolist ability to be predatory uh, on the regulatory system itself. So one of the, sort of the sweet spots for Chicago is telling a story about how, if you're worried about monopoly, you don't necessarily need more antitrust. What you need is deregulation, since regulation itself is what's propping up the durable monopolies that we have.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it, 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 it's almost like the... The thread that ties together Chicago um, in the antitrust space and Chicago with respect to regulation is just this notion that wherever government is involved, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the paradox when you speak about the at t case is the arguments, some of the arguments that get made in the Arley House conference about monopolies is they say, well, You have people like Hal Demsetz and John McGee saying, well, if we do end up with a monopoly, we don't have to do anything to break it up through antitrust because natural market forces will eventually cause other firms to enter the industry and break it up. And that goes all the way back to the Schumpeterian idea of creative destruction and so on. But the only antitrust case that the Reagan administration pursues through to a conclusion and breakup is AT&T. Why was it necessary to break AT&T up? Um, when all you really would have needed to do was to deregulate AT&T according to the antitrust version of the Chicago theory um, and just have market forces play, them, play themselves out. It's a, it's a peculiar thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah,
2: I, I do think that there was a... Um, uh, obviously, the AT&T case has been going on for a long time, and I, you know, I, I think that the view was they were such an entrenched monopolist because of such a long history of predational government processes and regulation that you you need to sort of break that cord cleanly. But, you know, go to the the Chicago School's definition of an entry barrier, right? Today we talk about entry barriers uh, as sort of as things that keep out new entrants. But um, the Chicago School defined entry barrier very specifically as um, costs or difficulties to enter a market that are faced by new entrants, but not faced by the incumbents in the industry. And that was really significant because there are relatively few of those kinds of entry barriers, right? right? yeah. The, the one big exception, or the one place you really found those under the Chicago definition, was where there was government regulation. Because oftentimes, government regulation would grandfather in incumbents or give an advantage to incumbents, uh, as opposed to new entrants. And so, again, if you were sort of thinking through the, 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 the Chicago theology on this, firms that were... Uh, subject to pervasive regulation, would actually have durable market power. But if you took that regulation away, uh, then why would we fear even dominant firms? This, now the Schumpeterian story comes in: dominance is only as good as the technology is good, and, and, it, and it quickly erodes. Entry isn't so hard if there aren't things like government regulations propping it up. So I think that sort of helps explain why we get this sort of this, this simultaneous package of deregulation and let's take our foot off the antitrust pedal.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that um, that 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 does sound right. And, and so so now we've got uh, you know it's sort of a, pop, a resurgence of populist antitrust, and you know there's sort of uh, people out there saying, well, we need to um, to go back to this mid 20th century approach. Uh, and and I almost get the feeling that the argument is we should just, we should bring back also the sort of mid-20th century economics. We should mm-hmm. start thinking about um, cases again in the sort of old structure conduct performance paradigm and, and, and so on. And so one wonders, I mean, is there, is it, so the last 40 years have just sort of, you know, have we learned, did we learn nothing from them? Were they just all entirely right. a waste? Or is there a way to kind of, you know, find a middle path in which, you know, perhaps we have more antitrust enforcement, but we don't, um, you know, we don't lose some of the lessons about the importance of size. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about
2: that. Yeah, well, what's interesting, of course, is that the, the, the political moment we live in today, which is the, sort of this, this new Brandeisian uh, or something call hipster uh, call for significantly reinvigorated antitrust enforcement, is not primarily coming out of, of sort of formal economics at all. I mean, it's coming out of uh, sort of a, a movement largely sort of of the progressive left that's very concerned about the uh, state of, of concentration or, or power, particularly among in, in big tech in the American economy today. Um, and, and but it's it's mu- it's really more almost of, of a social criticism than an economic criticism. I, I hate to make that distinction because, of course, you know it, it is an, it, it's a criticism of economic structures and economic principles. But it's it's much more, I think attuned to sort of Brandeisian themes, which really are sort of pre-structural. I mean, structuralism was not a kind of small as beautiful claim. It wasn't sort of, uh, you know, um, in, in industrial liberty is, is key to uh, democratic liberty. It's, it's, it's much more, it's a very a specific empirical claim about a certain set of relationships between structures and, and, and conduct and, and performance of markets. And I think now, in some sense, the the call um, is to go back to a more of a moral and social theory about uh, what antitrust is supposed to accomplish. Uh, which you know that's the Robinson-Patman Act, right? The Robinson-Patman Act is not part of structuralism. It's 1936. It's really you know a good 15, 20 years before structuralism comes to the fore as a as a predominant economic theory, right? The Robinson-Patman Act is 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 a theory about. Um, Certain, certain kinds of uh, business relationships and, 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 the over, and the misuse of power and, 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 and sort of why having uh, you know, big chain stores is a problem. Um, so I'm not sure where this current moment is going to take us. I don't really see it, though, as a call to go back to the economic theories that, under, that undergirded structuralism so much as sort of the political and social theories that undergirded Brandeisianism.
1: So in a way, it's trying to go back even further yeah. than the 1950s. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the curse
2: of bigness, right? The, this was this is Brandeis' work before he goes to the Supreme Court, right? This is um, really, I mean, this is really going back to the 1914, uh, you know, the, the FTC Act and the Clayton Act, and sort of the whole sweep between that 1936 and the Robinson-Patman Act. Of course, what happens to sort of you know take the momentum out of that Brandeisian moment is the war, and during the Second World War, um, big business, you know, is vital to the war effort. It's vital to our uh, you know, our engagement uh, and, and, and war mobilization. And so the Justice Department is, is tolling antitrust cases. Thurman Arnold is basically kicked out of the antitrust division and given a seat on the D.C. Circuit, uh, which seems like a promotion to me, but he didn't see it that way. <laughs> uh, and 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 so there's a view that during the war that we're going to go after, uh, that we're not going to go after <clears throat> big business so much because it's crucial to the war effort. Coming out of that, then, um, you, you kind of uh, – you know, large scale is being legitimized. Large scale business is legitimized. Large scale government's legitimized. but people have experience with a huge uh, government in the war effort, uh, big labor is still on the table, um, and and so it's it's a different. It's it's not the curse of bigness so much anymore. It's it's more of a of a theory about over concentration of markets uh, and and uh, sort of the idea of keeping uh, keeping. Corporate and business power within bounds, but we're still be comfortable with very large business scale organizations, right? Um, and so, I, what I hear now from the neo brandeisians is to go in some sense back to some of those themes from the twenties and thirties about the sort of the moral and social uh, dangers of a big scale across the board.
1: So, so, so we shouldn't. It, it's not that. So, you know, mm-hmm. Shira at Arley House comes in with this huge study showing, you know, where he talks all these engineers and he figures out what the minimum efficient scale is for, you know, major industrial firms. And it's, you know, he says it's smaller than what it is now in 1974, but in fact, it's still pretty large. And so and so so but the neo-grandiacians want to go back to way smaller than that. They want to go back to sort of, you know, small business. They want the sort of 19th century small business type world or some form of that. I
2: mean, they they want, you know, as we look sort of at the lineage of ideas in American history, a lot for me goes back to Jefferson and Hamilton, right, and and sort of their views on scale, um, you know, Jefferson's view on scale in government and in business, right? Jefferson wants an agrarian economy, the economy of the household producer. Um, Hamilton wants an industrial and banking economy, and he wants big government to support it, right? And, And when you look at that thematically, that carries forward to... to the 19th century, to the 20th century, um, I think Brandeis is really the heir of Jefferson in many ways. Brandeis is a a sharp critic of of, um, big business, of course. He he coins the idea of the curse of bigness. But Brandeis is also one of the people on the Supreme Court that's putting the brakes on FDR's expansion of federal government power. Brandeis thinks there's a threat in bigness, um, both in bigness in government and bigness in in, in business, right? Right. And I think part of what's interesting about the, the current crop of, of so-called neo-Brandeis people is that they're very skeptical of big business power. I'm not sure they're taking the Brandeisian views on the scale of the federal government. So Liz Warren <coughs> is not a Brandeisian, right? She may be Brandeisian on, uh, on, on antitrust except she wants to <coughs> uh, break up big business, um, but I don't get any sense that she has the same kind of concerns about the expansion of federal governmental power as a Brandeis had.
1: That that is an interesting um, contrast, right? The, right. So the pro- progressives want small private institutions, but are are more or less comfortable with larger with large government institutions. Um, and that there's there's sort of an inconsistency there, um, which sometimes makes makes me wonder sort of whether there are particular interests that you know. Mm-hmm neo brandeisians are interested in protecting right so you know one um, one thing that struck me is that a lot of neo- brandeisianism seems to have come out of uh, sort of opposition to Amazon's uh, you know sort of destruction of the publishing industry and also sort of big Tech Google and Facebook's destruction of the newspaper industry and and it and and neo brandeisianism has been, largely a creature of sort of right journalists right, and writers. It's been huge in the press and not so much within the academic literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes you wonder whether there's actually sort of a particular discrete interest group that's operating, you know, sort of you know, sub rosa to some extent behind it, right? Which is, you know, writers are threatened by big tech in multiple ways. They're threatened by Amazon um, because of what it's done to publishing. Uh, with e- e-books and so on, they're threatened by, um, you know, by, by Google and Facebook because of what they've done to journalism. And so, and, and big tech really has been the sort of, you know, public enemy number one for neo Brand- brandeisianism right? It's government, large government isn't such a problem, but these particular large private firms, which are threatening writers and journalists... Are a problem, And so, you know, so so interestingly, you know, one thing antitrust has always had an issue with is, you know, becoming sort of a vehicle for a particular economic interest, whether it's small business or whether it's, you know, writers or what have you trying to sort of, um, you know, find some kind of protection from market forces. <laughs> Do you have yeah. any thoughts about that? I mean, is that, it's that I, be part of the equation?
2: I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but now that you say it, it seems to be plausible. So, I mean, listen to, to Barry Lynn talk about... Um, about you know his vision for antitrust, and you know he he often sort of talks about uh, growing up in a town with sort of small small mom and pop stores, and then you see Walmart come in and sort of the destruction of uh, of, of sort of small scale, and it's almost this sort of nostalgia for a way of life uh, a way of life that seems to have passed us by in this sort of uh, rush towards concentration. You know whether it's a particular threat to his trade as a journalist or not, uh, that I, I, haven't, I haven't really thought about that. But I think you're right to say that um, antitrust has tended to um, to always attract interest groups so a few a few days ago um c n n uh, had a headline that said um, something to the effect that that well actually shockingly it's even some capitalists are supporting uh, Liz Warren's call for breakup and my reaction was capitalists have always supported aggressive antitrust it just depends on which capitalists you're talking right. about right um, it's you know it's uh, lots of i mean frankly. Behind uh, the you know behind the idea of breaking up the fang, let's say uh, Facebook, you know Apple, Google, um, Netflix, um, are lots of really really big tech and media companies that would love nothing better than to see Google and Facebook and Amazon broken up uh, and big online retailers right or other retailers. So mm-hmm. it, this is so while the, the, the leading edge of any antitrust movement. Uh, will often be captured by a few faces and a few ideas, and a, sort of a school of thought. You're going to get support from that uh, almost any action you want to take from people who, who, who stand to make money off right. of that outcome, right? And that doesn't sort of, um, mean that the, the movement's wrong. It's just to say that there's no such thing as a, as a pure version of of antitrust that's not, you know, that, that that's not being written uh, by people who have financial interest in its success.
0: Yeah. You know, I was wondering uh, if we going back to the early conference sort of framing for a second, um, to what extent do you think the transition to this new Chicago school perspective on on antitrust analysis and enforcement was inevitable? Like it would have happened Mm. just as a natural intellectual progression of sort of the economic thought of the time. And to what extent, or or rather, to what extent do you think it was sort of sparked by some particular set of socio-political or kind of intellectual currents that were particular to that moment in in time? And and in particular, I'm kind of wondering about the sort of um, longevity and power of this kind of consumer welfare perspective. Because one thing that struck me about the hipster antitrust argument is the way that they try to shoehorn a lot of these which i agree are much more kind of uh, kind of normative moral political perspectives on what the goals of any trust are but they still try to shoehorn it into a consumer welfare perspective mm. and at least from what i've seen tend to say things like well you know we're we're bene- it'll benefit consumer welfare in intangible ways right? Like maybe right. it won't make it lower prices, but it'll it'll make things better because of more innovation or it'll make things better because of, you know, you name the, you know, whatever the intangible is, right? It's not measurable by price, but it'll still be better for consumers in some sort of way that we can't quite specify yet.
2: Yeah. The inevitability question is interesting and this is you know, Part of goes to one's view of how history is formed. Is it sort of, you know, uh, people of, of, of distinctive character and personality sort of stamping their mark on history? And certainly you can tell that story. I mean, Chicago had these sort of, these, these titans, these, these, these big names, people like Dimsitz, people like Posner, people like Borkin, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Levy, director, Easterbrook, uh, who sort of come in and, and, and recast this sort of through the force of their arguments. Uh, I do think, though, there was something inevitable about the fall of structuralism uh, and part of the reason I say that is because at a certain point, even people like Phil Arita, who's writing the you know, the, the you know, Harvard Law professor writing the influential antitrust treatise, basically says, you know what, yeah, I was kind of a little bit wrong about the structuralism stuff on the empirical side. Now he doesn't become a Chicagoan, right? He he, he and the Arita treatise uh and, and now Herb Hobenkapsor as the, as the, as the heir of that moves towards institutionalism, and this is like all the Steve Breyer stuff about. Worrying about the sort of the frailties of antitrust process, so it's not that it's it's not inevitable that the Chicago school path would be chosen. I do think it was inevitable eventually that the particular empirical claims of the structuralists, as framed by them at the time, would be shown to be overstated. Right, so I do think that this was um, that structuralism had a shelf life. I also think if you look at American history, uh, that we've had um, epics of antitrust with sort of very sharp dislocations of the boundary, where uh, you know, a, 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 an epic can, 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 can predominate for a while and then be quickly transplanted by something else. I mean, um, look at just the, the New Deal. Within the New Deal, within the space of that one coalition of government, you had sort of three different moments of antitrust, from a kind of um, associationalism, where we're going to have so basically cardinalization through the National Industrial Recovery Act, that is a complete loser of an idea. No one likes it after it's tried. And then we kind of move to this period of, of like, super strong Brandeisian enforcement. Uh, and Thurman Arnold and, and Robert Jackson were are to go after all the big companies. We're going to bring them down. We're going to bring criminal indictments. And then, you know, from, you know, after Pearl Harbor, suddenly that's no longer palatable. And now we're going to have, like, big businesses good again. And, and, and Arnold is basically fired. That's within the period of one coalition, one administration. And so I do think there's something kind of inevitable about the cycling of ideas in uh, about antitrust in American history. Um, it, we, we have, we've had many different epochs, and Chicago will Chicago end? Yeah, Chicago will end. Um, it, it's not going to be. It's not forever. It's not the end of history. Can't be. It's not the history of antitrust suggests that um, whatever happens next, Chicago at some point uh, will will see its shelf life ended. Do,
1: do, do you? So one of the interesting. Um, contrasts that's been going on these days is between the sort of vigorous antitrust enforcement that you see in Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is fine Google a ton of money in recent years for a variety of different practices. Whereas in the U S you have relatively little enforcement. The FTC looked into Google uh, uh, a few years ago and decided, you know, to, to, to sort of close the investigation. Um, But one of the big contrasts between European antitrust, or at least at the EU level and American antitrust, is that there's no breakup remedy in Europe, right? So Europeans can sort of act very aggressively and fine companies billions of dollars, but they can't break them into pieces. There's a kind of, and that reflects a sort of fundamental respect for this notion of size and economies of scale and so on, perhaps. I'm not sure exactly what the sort of European origins are um, for for the the not having the breakup remedy. But whereas in the US, it, it seems like whenever you get a sort of resurgence of antitrust, it's played out through this sort of bloodlust, right? It's, you know, we want, you know, we want to break yeah. these companies up into pieces. And you have that again, it's, you know, Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, no, I want to break up the tech giants. I don't just want to find them or regulate them. Um, and does that, I mean, could that, I wonder whether that might actually explain the sort of, you know, bipolar nature of antitrust in the U.S., that there's a sort of this tolerance for extremism,
2: and when you have extremism, you get oscillation. Right. That may be the case. You know, what I found most interesting about Elizabeth Warren's uh, call for breaking up big tech was that her her press release begins with what? With a Microsoft case, which is, of course, the poster child for not breaking up. I mean, that was a case in which the government wanted to break up. Judge Jackson ordered Microsoft broken up, and then D.C. Circuit unbank unanimously says, no, we're not going to do that. And It's a complicated set of reasons, partly due to Judge Jackson's... um, uh, you know, the statements he made to journalists and so forth and the appearance of impropriety or, or bias, uh, partly due to the fact that they, they reversed on some of the liability findings, partly due to the fact that Judge Jackson didn't hold sufficient hearings on it. But you still come away with the idea that, that you know, the AT&T, uh, you know, that was a one-off. And before that, we had Standard Oil. But, it, you know, we've had a lot of discourse around breaking up in American history. We haven't done it very much uh, and certainly not for a really long time. Um, and so I do think there's a, there's a real fear of what would happen to the efficiencies, economies of scale uh, if we started ripping comp- companies apart. It's very different to uh, – we, we've had some cases involving um, divestitures post-closing in a merger because we, you know, the, the merger wasn't scrutinized under hard sky originally. Uh, but that, that's within a, a you know, year or two typically of, of catching it. But we haven't had this idea of companies um, you know, just being broken up. Uh, because we think they've gotten too big. Um, apart from cases like Standard Oil and AT T, uh, really rare that we've seen that in American history. Uh, and I think there, there, there's a there's a real sense of of you know of what might happen if we did that. Partly, it's uh, create a vacuum for someone else to be really big. Uh, mm-hmm. And that goes back to the idea from the early House conference that there may be economies of scale that drive certain kinds of business organizations. And whatever else we want to do we are, uh, there's a kind of a, there's a, you know, whatever other um, ideological influence uh, expresses itself in American antitrust, there's always a deeply embedded pragmatism underneath the surface of that. And from right to left, people are really reluctant to, to, you know, kill the goose that lays the golden egg. I mean, you know, um, a few um, months ago, I, I heard Herbert Hovenkamp speak at a conference and, you know, Herb is kind of the, the, you know, the heart of American antitrust. Uh, he's certainly no Chicago school guy, but he says, I mean, this is a, uh, you know, Herb says something to the effect of, uh, you know, the, the Democrats have to be really worried if they if their they're, if they're, um, best view of antitrust is, let's kill Amazon. Because there are, you know, millions and millions of Americans from right to left who kind of really love what they get from Amazon, like two-day yeah. shipping, right? And, and the same thing you can say for Google or Facebook. Um, so I, I think... <coughs> that as soon as Senator Warren said that, you know, Senator Klobuchar jumps up and says, whoa, wait a minute, that's, that's too fast. Um, and I think she has the finger more on the pulse of the center of the American polity, which says, I really don't like bigness. I'm really worried about bigness, but let's not go slaying it just yet. Let's, let's do everything we can to limit its power without killing the goose that lays the golden egg. I think that's a long-standing thing in American history as well.
1: Yeah, and it, it, that um, I, was, I was struck um, the other day by the Amazon had been criticized for having this sort of most favored nation requirement that sort of third-party sellers that sell on Amazon um, can't offer the same product for a lower price on their own website or on any other platform. And, you know, there's obvious reasons why that might be anti-competitive. It will harm other platforms that want to sort of, you know, compete with Amazon by, charging these third-party sellers lower fees, but the sellers can't sort of pass those savings on to consumers. And so it puts them – okay, so there's competitive issues. But the flip side of it is it's really great to be able to go on a website and, know I don't have to waste any time shopping all over the damn internet right. to find a lower price because this is going to be the low price – You know, this is the lowest price on the entire internet, yeah. right? I
2: mean, and, and, and so there's um... – I think, I think Americans in particular feel about bigness the way they feel about privacy. They love their privacy, they hate bigness, and yet when you ask them to vote with their pocketbooks or vote with their feet, they, they show very little actual willingness to buy privacy or security, uh, data <laughs> right. security, and they also show, I think, sort of in terms of their, their buying behavior, uh, a re- reluctance to avoid you know the Walmarts, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebook. I mean, they, they like what they get from scale. So I, I do think, uh, just, and this is a, a longstanding thing in American history, that you know it, it's not that Politically, rhetorically, morally, whatever it is, we have this deep-seated suspicion about concentrated power anywhere. We don't like it, and we want we want someone to stand up and, and 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 speak, you know, truth to power and speak power back to power. But that said, when it comes to the way we want to buy, you know, goods and services or get them for free, as, as lots of these services have today, um, you know, we'll, every time we'll vote to with our pocketbook, with our our clicks. Uh, to use the services that give us what we want.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I wonder to what extent the sort of reframing of antitrust in terms of consumer welfare and the the stickiness of that reframing has complicated or or limited the ability kind of politically and and functionally to act on the kinds of kind of concerns or opposition to bigness that might have been actionable in the past, Um, and that it seems like people are trying to act on today.
2: Yeah. I do think that there is a, um, often a disconnect between the way that antitrust is framed and the, what's actually going on in antitrust. Um, because even during the period of, of structuralism, you still had the growth of industry. Um, and uh, even when the Supreme Court was striking down all, all kinds of mergers... You still had very large organizations that were that were continuing to grow in the American economy, uh, which of course, at at some point during the structuralist period, led to calls for no fault monopolization. You know, our merger policy isn't isn't strong enough to stop these companies because they're not all growing through mergers. Some of them are just growing because they're getting bigger, and so, um, uh, and and the consumer welfare wasn't um, always just about consumer welfare; was about economic efficiency. So. Uh, you know, uh, there 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 are ways in which the things we we say about an antitrust regime are are not always the things that are actually happening in terms of uh, of of the actual practice. I and mean, one of the big things, of course, that happens in the '70s um, that's not Chicago school driven really is the Hart Scott Rodino Act, and we kind of think about that as this, this pre-merger notification statute that uh, gives the agencies a chance to look at mergers before they're they're, they're, they're closed. But that, I mean, I think the Hart Scott Act uh, almost more than all the Chicago school had a bigger effect at institutionalizing economic analysis. Because what it did is it shifted merger review from the courts to the agencies. Yeah. And it created sort of the professionalization of antitrust, technical antitrust in the agencies. And the merger guidelines become a much more important source of, of prediction about merger outcomes than case law does. And institutionally, it's, 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 it's bureaucratic, it's expert, it's, it's within the agencies as stuff is being done. That was not what Hart Scott was supposed to accomplish. That was not the intention uh, of Congress, in 1976. That's very much the outcome uh, of that. And so, when we start, when we think about the stories about what happens, whether it's whether it's Early House or uh, or anything else, um, there there are multiple different things that are that are happening simultaneously on the problem. Some of which are intentional, you know, scholarship by Chicago School people. That's intentional. But also things like Hart Scott, which have a huge effect that's not so intentional.
1: And to, to add, add to that, <coughs> Donald Baker a few years ago made the point that you, the other effect of Hart, Scott, Rodina was to make merger review a lot less high profile because right. before, these mergers would happen and the agencies would get on them after they were consummated. And that's big news, right? I mean, you know, if, if uh, you know two large firms merge and the agencies go to break them back up again, I mean, that's breakup happening. That's going to be, that, that makes antitrust seem a lot more important, whereas if you're if you're just sort of nipping them in the bud before the before these deals actually get consummated, it, it becomes a lot less sort of politically charged. And, and I think that that also contributed to the reduction in that sort of the feeling that there was an antitrust cop on the beat, oddly yeah. enough.
2: Richard Hofstadter wrote his uh, famous essay, What Happened to the Antitrust Movement in the early 1960s? Uh, and already by that point, he's talking about sort of antitrust as having the movement is having ended. And, and, and we've kind of gone to a period when antitrust is, you know, he kind of makes the point that we used to have lots of antitrust rhetoric without much antitrust. But then today we have quite a bit of actual antitrust, but not that much rhetoric about it. It's, it's kind of gone underground. And this is before Chicago. This is before Hart Scott. And so I think that really accelerated the 70s where um, uh, where we, we still had quite a bit of antitrust, but it just wasn't salient. It wasn't observed by most people. Uh, you know, you often hear the Chicago killed antitrust. In Richard Posner made this quip, you know, last year, the year before, that well, antitrust is dead, isn't it? But if you look by many different measures, antitrust is, has been quite active and alive. Private enforcement has been, uh, has remained very active since it fell off in the 70s. Um, you get a lot, I mean, you get a lot of merger review happening. Um, if you go to the uh, American Bar Association's spring meeting and you see the 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 amount of money represented in the room in terms of the thousands of people who make their living off the antitrust industry you know globally now um, you start realizing there's there's still a lot of activity that's happening here now whether it's effective or not is another, another issue but it's not dead but yeah. it is much less salient it's much less out of the public eye
1: no that, that, yeah it, you know right at that antitrust spring meeting which brings together something like you know seven ten thousand um, antitrust lawyers and academics from around the world. I remember a few years ago I was there and there was a panel and it, it was, uh, it was mergers from, uh, you know, how, how to get your merger from three firms in the industry to two firms in an industry <laughs> past, right? Right. So, so yeah, I mean, there is, a, I think, you know, right. There's a huge antitrust industry, but, but whether it's effective, um, I think is, you know, right. it, it, that's a real question, um. But but the but the flip side is should it I mean do we want it to be effective right I mean is you know is is more competition always a good thing
2: Well so some areas so we talk about antitrust as though it's it's one thing and you have to break it down into different things I think we're we're at a period of time when anti cartel enforcement is at its as stronger than it's ever been I mean you look at yeah the corporate That's fines you look at imprisonment look at just the 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 resources we have through leniency through global cooperation agreements through amnesty deals I mean, it's not that it's perfect, uh, but I think that this is bipartisan. Administration to administration, we go after cartels and, 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 we, and the agencies take that seriously. So that's a, that's a huge piece when we talk about about antitrust, that people just kind of forget about the conversation. It's like it doesn't happen, but that's, um, that's a very important aspect of, of, of um, antitrust. Merger enforcement, I mean, so could it be stronger? Of course it could be stronger. Should it be stronger? That's, that's the question on the table. But it's not like we don't have merger enforcement today. I mean, uh, you know, every year there are there are deals that are killed. What you do you know, to the earlier point, you see very few litigations. And that's because most questionable deals either aren't proposed because people know they can't happen, or they're proposed and some of them are just dropped because the agencies say no. And some of them are negotiated so we have either conduct remedies or structural remedies. So there's still a lot of activity around mergers. You propose a four to three today, you know. Good luck. I mean, it's not—that's not by any means assured. Talk to AT T, mobile about that, right? Um, so again, have we let through mergers too many mergers in beer, too many mergers in airlines, too many mergers in oil, too many mergers in banks? Like maybe, but that's a different proposition than there not being a real, you know, serious antitrust regime in place in the United States today, which there is. I think the one place where we can talk about whether there's, you know, there really is that much activity certainly at the public level is monopolization enforcement, which neither agency has had any appetite to, to enforce vigorously uh, for really since the Clinton administration. You know, but their query whether we need public enforcement is there's an awful lot of private enforcement as well. Uh, you look at the volume of cases, including successful cases that are brought under monopolization theories every year, and, and there's, you know, there's certainly activity happening there as well.
1: Yeah. You point to really, um, I think, important <clears throat> and weird inconsistency in the Chicago school critique and what happened afterwards, which is that right, Chicago in Arley House was all about there were this, you know, right before Arley House there were all these proposals for no fault monopolization statutes and going out and breaking up big firms even if they aren't doing wrong just because they're big. And then you get, uh, and, and so you get all this Chicago school people saying, well, big is good. And yet almost all the arguments they make about the virtues of large size firms could apply to the virtues of cartels, right? I mean, you know, there's no reason why cartels can't work together to innovate. There's no, right? I mean, Uh. there's just, it's, there's really sort of this weird um, over-determinacy of the, uh, of sort of the arguments that Chicago makes. And yet... If there was one thing that's happened after Chicago, and which Chicago held sacred, it was the notion that we should go after cartels
2: and we should ramp that up. I think the Chicago answer is that cart- cartels don't give you any efficiencies for all the losses of competition. So the, a, a true cartel, unlike say a, a research joint venture, in '84 we passed a statute that's designed to protect research joint ventures, and that, that is part of the Chicago project, right? Yeah, that's, so, that's true. But, but the idea of a naked cartel, I think even Chicago got that. That, that if all you're doing is is getting in a smoke field room together to um, to reduce output and increase prices, there's no efficiency associated with that, or, or almost none. Like, I, I think some Chicago people could figure out possible efficiencies. I think for Chicago, the big question was, is that conduct pernicious in the sense that cartels are long-lasting? And lot of the Chicago school critique was, no, no, cartels, there are these inherent temptations to cheat. Intrigue can happen when prices go up and things, these things fall apart under their own weight. So, um, but I think by and large, you know, the Reagan administration brought cases against cartels, uh, lots in public procurement. Um, and that makes sense, of course, because who's paying for public procurement? The taxpayer, right? Reagan wants to reduce the tax burden on Americans. And so part of this is, is kind of going after cartels and people supplying the taxpayer yeah. uh, at the taxpayer's uh, instance. But, um, you know, I certainly um, from from Clinton to Bush, to Obama, you see a real um, sort of, I think, consensus, uh, bipartisan consensus that cartels uh, are something we can all agree that that, that need to be heavily uh, prosecuted, uh, and and I think quite effectively overall. So um, I, I think we're we're reaching the end of our uh,
1: time. So you, you know, thank, thank thanks very much for being with us here. Uh, it's been wonderful getting the chance to talk about. Not just whether or not uh, antitrust died in 1974, but um, the present uh, and uh, of antitrust as well. So thank you very
2: much. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.